if you're a guest with us today, we want you to know that we're in a series. We've been in a series since August. We're going through the Bible book by book, and last week was to be Philippians, today's Colossians, so we've combined the two together. And, and I want us to begin with a little chorus. Um, maybe you've learned it years ago. Uh, I did. I learned it in camp, VBS, that type of thing. It's uh, called Rejoice in the Lord Always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know what? Okay, now, now why that chorus this morning? Well, the, the simple reason is you've just learned Philippians 4.4. 4 which is in the very heart of the text that we're going to read and study this morning, which is really interesting because right in the midst of Paul's discourse on conflict comes this verse, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. There's been conflict in the church ever since uh, the beginning of the church. As a matter of fact, ever since Acts chapter 6, when the Jewish widows of Greek heritage complained that the Jewish widows of Hebrew heritage got taken care of a lot better than they did, there has been conflict in the church. And that, at that point in time, why the apostles got together and they appointed deacons to help take care of those who were having a hard time in the church. And because the church is not a building, because the church is the people, conflict is inevitable. Uh, we preachers deal with conflict. Sometimes the conflict is directed at us. We, we've come to recognize it. Uh, sometimes it's good news, bad news kind of conflict things. For instance, good news, the women's ministry voted to send you a get well card when you were sick. Bad news, the vote passed 21 to 20. Good news, the church leadership wants to send you to the Holy Land. Bad news, they are stalling until the next Mi Middle East conflict erupts. As you know, conflict isn't limited to the church. It's a part of life in general. And I guess that's to be expected. We don't like it, but it's to be expected due to our various personality traits, our likes, our dislikes, our opinions, our outlooks, our styles, our goals, and our dreams. Conflicts are just going to erupt. If you are alive, you will experience tough times in relationships. But such words as rejoice in the Lord always seem odd in a conversation about conflict, don't they? But then again, maybe, maybe we just don't realize how important joy is in the context of resolving conflict. Consider the following condition. This condition affects 70 million Americans and is faulted for 38,000 deaths each year. It costs the United States $70 billion annually in loss of productivity. According to research, 64% of teenagers struggle with it. It's a major cause of poor school performance. Research also indicates that the most severe cases occur between the ages of 30 and 40. Research says the condition impacts over 50% of the population over 65. And treatments involve everything from drugs and herbal medication to machines. Now, what's the condition? Is it chemical abuse? Marital strife? Boring sermons? Actually, boring sermons are part of the cure. The problem is insomnia. Americans can't get to sleep. And the cause? It is the conflict brought on by stress. Stress, pressure, fear, anxiety, lack of confidence, apprehension, panic. 
all of which grows out of some kind of a conflict in our lives, inner conflict, our interpersonal conflict, our financial conflict, our work-related conflict, and you just go down the whole list, and it impacts us in such a way that conflict, when it rages in our life, a good night's sleep is hard to come by, and when you don't sleep well, it is hard to find joy. So maybe Paul isn't so far off the mark when he reminds us to rejoice because that may be part of the cure for the conflicts that we face. Now, it's one thing when our conflicts remain private, but when they become public, everything escalates. And that was the case at the church at Philippi. For all of Paul's joy in remembering the Philippian church, they were not without their issues. No church is. No church is perfect. Every church has its issues. And Paul goes so far as to address the individuals by name and pleads with them to learn how to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, how you handle conflicts when it involves others in your life, your family, your place of employment, or in the body of Christ will impact how you live out your life and how you will experience joy. And so I'm glad that Paul addresses this issue and gives us some, what I think are really great answers. I'm going to take you to our main text this morning, which is Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 2. Paul writes, he says, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things." Whatever you have heard or received, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace, peace, will be with you. Now, this passage is, introduces us to four people that we don't know anything about outside of these verses here. These two ladies that are mentioned, Euodia and Syntyche, and I'm not sure if that's the way they would have pronounced their names, have been very valuable to the church and work side by side with Paul. As a matter of fact, Paul uses a gladiator term here when he talks about contending. It's really the word fighting to the death for the sake of the gospel. And they worked side by side with this fellow by the name of Clement, who is a faithful follower of Christ. So they have been faithful workers in the past, and Paul considers them to be dear friends. But something has happened, and there is a conflict that has erupted. We do not know its cause, but it was forceful enough for Paul to address the issue and to address them by name, and the terminology that Paul uses in this text is as if to say, I'm talking to you as if I was face-to-face -face with you, ladies. Please let go of this conflict. 
Now, it'd be tough, wouldn't it? You get this letter from Paul who's in prison in Rome, and it gets read on Sunday morning, and there is your name in front of God and everybody in the congregation as those who are at odds with one another. I have to wonder, given the nature of this, that the, the, the congregation was divided over the issue. Do not know what the issue is. As a matter of fact, some, some historians suggest that Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul hints at the problem that's going on in the church. When he writes this, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not only look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Maybe there was some kind of a selfish ambition, or maybe there was vanity that was going on between these two ladies. We don't know. But Paul knew it had to stop. And their conflict had moved way beyond the two of them and now was involving the church. And then Paul says to another member of the church, calls him loyal yoke fellow, which is not the easiest thing to say. You say that three times in a row and you'll get all uh, tangled up on that one. And we don't know, this could actually be a personal name, but it is translated as if it's just identifying this person who said, Paul may have said, you know who you are. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to work with them to help resolve the issue. Now, notice what Paul didn't say. Paul doesn't say they need to become best friends if they're going to resolve this conflict. He didn't say they need to join the same small group and get along. They need to become euchre partners. He didn't say anything like that. Okay, sometimes we think to resolve conflict, it, we have to become best friends. No, no, it doesn't work that way. It, sometimes people have to end up going separate directions, but they can resolve the conflict in order to do that. But in matters of the church and in the cause of Jesus Christ, they needed to be of one mind. They needed to be united in the kingdom. This passage then represents a stark contrast, folks. Euodia and Syntyche are remembered as women of conflict. Yokefellow is remembered as a mediator, and Clement is remembered as one who was faithful to Christ and whose name, along with others, was written in the book of life. So here's my question to you. How do you want to be remembered? What kind of a life legacy do you want to leave behind? Do you want to be remembered as a person of conflict, a mediator, or a faithful follower of Christ? Based on your actions and your words and your attitudes, what would people know about you a hundred years from now if your life was reduced to one sentence in a letter like this? You know, we would all do well to sit down and figure out what kind of a summary do I want people to remember of the life that I lived in this world? Minimize conflict if you can. And when you do, it will enhance the joy in your life. Now, here are a few, few ideas from Paul's letter that I think are practical and, uh, and divinely appointed that will help us deal with, with the conflict issues. So here they are quickly. First one is simply this, learn to react better. Learn to react better. Everybody reacts differently to conflict. Some people try to avoid conflict by pretending it doesn't exist or by running away or some take the ultimate terrible solution of escape through suicide. Tragically, suicide has become the third leading cause of death among adolescents in the United States. But I'm here to tell you, it is never, never a solution to the problems, regardless of how intense the conflict may be, 
There are those who are both willing and capable of helping you work through the conflict. You are not alone. That is never a solution. So if you're getting to the end of your rope, let somebody know. Talk to some of us here. We will do everything we can to get you plugged into the right person who can help you work through the conflict. Don't escape it. Because you really can't escape it. Some take the opposite approach to escape, and they actually try to escalate the conflict. They attack verbally, emotionally, socially, sometimes even physically. Some resort to litigation. They try to escalate the conflict by hurting others legally or financially. It is conflict that is fueled by hatred that leads to such uncontrolled anger. And the result of uncontrolled anger is always destruction, folks. Dale Carnegie wrote this several years ago. He said, when we hate our enemies, we give them power over us. Power over our sleep, our appetites, our happiness. They would dance with joy if they knew how much they were worrying us. Our hatred is not hurting them at all, but it is turning our days and our nights into turmoil. Oh boy, he's so right. Why do you think Paul writes via the Holy Spirit, to, to deal with conflict in our life because the conflict doesn't necessarily hurt the other person nearly as much as it is hurting us. According to Dr. Tony Fiore, there is a cost when anger is involved in our conflicts. There's a cost to your health. Chronic high levels of anger are associated with the increased risk uh, uh, health risks uh, in, in our lives. Headaches, backaches, allergic disorders, ulcers, high blood pressure, heart attacks, strokes, just to name a few. Angry conflict ends up affecting us physically. Here's second cost, your self-esteem. When you have an outburst of anger, it may at the moment make you feel better. All right, I really nailed him on that. And, and then when you start to to calm down and you begin to rationally and logically look at what happened, there is an embarrassment and a an guilt and, an ash and a shame that comes into our life because we, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted that way. Oh, I wish I could do that over. And the more that happens, the more it chips away at our own self-worth and esteem. So there's a cost with our angry conflicts. And the third cost is your relationships. Few things can be as painful and costly to your relationships as this unresolved conflict, and anger. Frequent and intense outbursts can hinder career advancement, destroy marriages, tear families apart, and ruin friendships. And so Paul writes, and, and, and understand this, folks, Paul understands the power of anger. He was so angry at the church, he was persecuting Christians, remember? before he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he reminds us that the answer is not to be enraged with our relationships, but to enjoy our relationships. And at least three times, the command of joy or rejoice appears in the book of Philippians. Now, the word appears several other times, but these are commands. These are imperatives. 2.18 says, be glad and rejoice. Not an option. It's an imperative. 3.1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's an imperative. And the one that we learned this morning, Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. It is not an option. Karl Barth concludes that from these commands that joy, as it's spelled out in the book of Philippians, is God's defiant nevertheless. You got tough times, nevertheless rejoice. 
You feeling tired and weary in your faith? Nevertheless, rejoice. You got conflict with someone you can't seem to resolve? Nevertheless, rejoice. I like what Kent Hughes writes concerning rejoice in the Lord always. He says the apostles' words allow for no loopholes. Always means always. It permits no exceptions, regardless of how humiliating or painful things might be, end quote. So there you have it. There is no time, there is no moment, there is no space, there is no situation in which you cannot rejoice. So then your reaction begins with the command to rejoice. React better? Okay. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I will rejoice in the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be happy about the conflict. It just means you rejoice in God's ability to work through the conflict. And then add to that what we read in verse 5. It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, gentleness is a tough word for us men because we so oftentimes equate gentleness with weakness. And, and we men do not want to deal with weakness. We don't want to appear to be weak. But gentleness is best described as knowing when to demand the letter of the law and when to extend compassion. Gentleness and weakness are not synonymous, guys. Gentleness is, a, is an admirable quality, knowing when to stand firm, when to extend grace and compassion. Abraham Lincoln impresses me as a man who was gentle but never weak. The story is told that Secretary of War Edwin Stanton was angered by an army officer who accused him of favoritism, and so Stanton complained to Lincoln about it, and Lincoln said, why don't you write a letter? And so Stanton did, and he just wrote a tirade in the letter, brought it back, read it to Lincoln, and Lincoln said, okay, that's, that's good. What are you going to do with the letter? He said, well, I'm going to send it, of course. And Lincoln says, no, you're not. Burn the letter. He said, you had a great time writing the letter. It has made you feel better. You've poured out your heart. He said, now go back and write a better letter. You see, Lincoln's practice was when he was really upset was to write and just pour it all out in a letter, then burn the letter, and then write a letter when he was of a better frame of mind. That's gentleness. It's not weakness. It's power under control. So let your gentleness be evident to all. Second thing Paul writes here is he says, pray better. Paul writes, do not be anxious or worry. Now, this might be harder to accept if Paul had been writing this while he was resting under a palm tree on the Isle of Capri, but he writes this from the insufferable prison devoid of sunlight under the very heart of the city of Rome. Now, if Paul writing from those adverse conditions can say, don't be anxious about anything, don't worry in your circumstances, then what excuse do we have to, to do less than that? The popular song of a few years ago said, don't worry, be happy. I think if Paul had been writing the song, he would have said, don't worry, pray better. Because if you want to have joy, it will come when you learn to pray better. Present your requests, your needs, your concerns, your joys, your sorrows, and everything else to God in a spirit of thanksgiving, and the end result is that God will answer with a peace that will help you put the conflict into proper perspective. Peace does not mean that there is the absence of conflict. Peace just describes this interability to deal with the conflict, and perspective makes such a difference. 
Um, maybe you're like me. I notice that sometimes I can just be incredibly bothered and preoccupied by a mountain that started as a molehill, and I can just be all twisted up inside about the whole thing, and then, then I get the news that somebody's been diagnosed with cancer, or somebody's lost a job, or, or a marriage has just broken up and a family is hurting, and suddenly the thing that bothered me so much doesn't bother me anymore because it's all been put back into perspective. Here's the thing. Prayer changes our perspective. When we pray, we begin to see things from God's point of view, and His view will help us deal with our conflicts. Pray better. Think better. The brain is an amazing organ. Much of its function is still shrouded in mystery, but the idea of us only using 10%, how many of you have ever heard we only use 10% of our brains? Okay, that's mythical. That, that's not true. Neurologist Barry Gordon wrote, he said, we use virtually every part of the brain, and most of the brain is active almost all the time. It's not that we use a small percentage of the brain. I think the problem is we are more likely not applying the power of our minds. We let our minds wonder. We don't engage our minds in the situation. The brain isn't work. Our mind just is not working like it should be. Imagine if we applied 100% of the power of our mind. God wants our minds to think better. Look at what he wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And remember what we read just a minute ago. I said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think. Think about these things. Now, there's six thought patterns here for your mental improvement. Truth not deceit, honor, which is moral excellence that leads to dignity, just, that's what is right, pure, not morally despicable, lovely, focus on the attractive things of this world, and admirable, which is commendable, of high character. When your mind focuses on those things, you'll not only think better, you'll feel better, you'll act better, you'll treat others better, you'll even sleep better, and conflicts will be minimized in your life when your thinking and thoughts are better. So when Paul says rejoice, he's right on target with it. Last thing, live better. Verse 9 says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. In other words, live it. And then, and then the God of peace will be with you. All of this, Paul says, we should practice. Don't just talk about it. Live it. It's so easy for us to, to philosophize about it. It's easy for me to stand up here and talk about it. It's a lot harder for me to put this into practice. But until you live it, it, it doesn't change anything. I've always liked this poetic line. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, <laughs> that's another story. See, it's always so easy to say, oh, when we get home to heaven, there will be no more conflicts or problems or issues, and we'll just have joy forever. Well, it's not about what it's going to be. It's what are you doing right now to make a difference in the conflicts and the joy. Paul writes in Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it for Him. And you can't do it for Him if you're in a spirit of conflict. 
That's why I'm convinced that genuinely following Jesus positively impacts how we deal with conflict. (laughs) One lady who had become a Christian spoke up about the wonderful changes in her attitude since she became a follower of Jesus. She said, I am so glad I found Christ. She said, I have an uncle I used to hate so much I vowed I would never go to his funeral, but now I'd be happy to go any time. <laughs> well, she may not have worded it the best way, but she's getting the point. If you want to sleep better at night, then you must make every effort to imitate the character of Christ and follow these wise words of Paul. Do your best to get along with people. Think about how you wish to be treated and then treat others the same way. Be so Christ-like and winsome that even when others disagree with you, they'll find no cause for conflict. Make it your goal to react better, pray better, think better, live better. And most of all, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice.